How many of you have ever been summoned for jury duty? Have you ever had that opportunity? We call it an opportunity. What a blessing that is to get one of those in the mail. And I have had that privilege and that wonderful opportunity to go on my appointed day and to sit there with a couple of hundred other people in a large room waiting for your name to be called. And uh, maybe on your particular occasion like mine, there were several juries they were looking for and so it took all day. They give you a stipend for lunch, you know what I'm talking about? It's not much and uh, they don't give you much time to find lunch, but uh, then you come and sit again and wait for your name to be called. And you know, it's always great to be, be able to tell them I'm a pastor of a Baptist church. That does it right there. Thank you for showing up. Mr. Boswell, you are excused, and so I get to walk out. Uh, maybe you've had the opportunity and the privilege to serve our community by sitting on a jury, but here's a lady named Miss Hunter who was called to serve on a jury and to perform her jury duty, and she went on her appointed day and sat in her seat and waited for her name to be called, and sure enough, her name was called, and, and she got up and sat, you know, in that juror's area and waited for her name and there was a couple of questions that when her name was finally called you know the defense attorney asked her a couple of names and the prosecutor asked her a couple of things and so there was and then finally she said you know upon being asked do you think you would be a good juror she then had to honestly confess you know I'm not quite sure I would be a good juror for uh, this jury and for this case because I do not believe in capital punishment and so because I don't believe in capital punishment I don't think I would be good to serve as a juror well, the public defender liked her because she was very thoughtful and very kind and very considerate and very quiet and calm. And so he was trying to convince her that she needed to serve on the jury. So he exclaimed to her, he said, Madam, this is not a murder trial. It's a simple civil suit. A wife is bringing a case against her husband. Yes, a wife is bringing a case against her husband because he gambled away the $12,000 he had promised to use to remodel the kitchen for her birthday. Now, do you think you'll be able to serve on this jury? She said, well, considering the circumstances, I think I would, I would be willing to serve. And so both attorneys kind of did their little thing back and forth. And then she added before they could come to a conclusion, she said, but by the way, I guess I could be wrong about the capital punishment thing. <laughs> That's going to take some of you to kind of connect the dots. In marriage, sometimes capital punishment seems like a positive alternative, doesn't it? Divorce never Capital punishment, yes. The Apostle Paul in the whole book of Romans has been somewhat like a defense attorney arguing his case for what we're going to call justification, meaning that God declares those of us who are in Christ righteous. It is a declaration that God makes. Now, the reason why he is seeing himself somewhat explaining logistically, logically, and scripturally this entire basis of his argument is because there have been some conflict in the church that he's addressing to the Roman church. You see, there were some Jews who had accepted Christ as their savior, and they were seeking to bring some of their Judaism into their Christianity. Now, Judaism is a, is a practice in which you must work your way into being approved by God. 
In order to gain and to earn and to merit God's approval, there are certain things that you must do. And if you don't do these things, you do not earn, you do not merit, you do not deserve God's approval. You can't come into his presence. And so these Gentiles who were also becoming converted by the power of the gospel, trusted in Jesus as their savior, were joining this church. And this church had a doctrinal conflict and they were trying to convince these Gentile, these non-Jewish New believers, they must be circumcised in order to be acceptable by God. Now, we're not going to go into the whole circumcision thing, so just relax. But the circumcision that Paul does talk about is the circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. But nonetheless, a conflict. In other words, there's something that you must work, there's something that you must do in order to gain God's acceptance. And so he logically, theologically, scripturally presents this entire theme throughout the book of Romans, presenting his case as if he were in front of a jury to defend his position that justification is in Christ by grace through faith alone. And so he's presenting this argument. And now he gets to Romans chapter 12, in which he begins to then put all these doctrinal concepts into practice. And we come today to this passage in Romans 12, verse 1, where he somewhat concludes a little bit of that discussion. He does mention some of this a little bit later on in in the rest of the letter of the book that we call a book, the rest of the letter in Romans. But his argument is pretty much concluded by Romans 12, 1. And he's admonishing the Roman church, and as well as us, who are in Christ, The appeal, the admonition, the encouragement to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now, last week was a pretty hard study, I must admit. It was tough. I mean, the the sacrifice thing is hard enough to present ourselves as living sacrifice. That means I'm going to have to sacrifice in order to follow Christ, and that's not really in my vocabulary, I know about yours. It's not something that I would choose to do, you see. Blessing or sacrifice, I choose blessing any time, I'm not going to choose sacrifice, but in order to be blessed, there are sometimes we are blessed through the path of sacrifice, and he says to present ourselves as living sacrifices, and so we dealt with that, and that was uncomfortable, and then we got to the holy part, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, and that's hard. Because the reality is that most of us understand that we are sinners in need of God's saving grace. And it's hard for us to live a sin-free life. So how do we present ourselves as holy? You know, God says, be holy as I am holy. And how do we struggle with this whole concept of righteousness and holiness and trying to live out our faith and presenting ourselves holy to God when, like the Apostle Paul, the things I want to do I can't do and the things I don't want to do I do, woe is me. I have this dichotomy, this struggle, this conflict going on with me, and I just can't seem to arrive where I know I need to be. And we talked about the standard being so high that we cannot rise to that standard in this lifetime. And that may be a little bit discouraging to you. And now we come to this part about being acceptable to God. And unless you're a very prideful, self-righteous believer today, none of us in this room believe that we can stand before God completely acceptable to him. There's some aspect, there's some part in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we know that's not acceptable to God. If we're honest... 
Unless we're filled with pride and self-righteousness, we would must have to honestly admit, God, I don't, there are times in my life, feel very acceptable to you. So in order to, hold, to deal with this whole concept of our acceptability to God and how we present ourselves as acceptable to God, I'm going to have three studies in the next, beginning today, in the next two after this, three studies about how we are to be acceptable to God. Because I'm convinced we cannot fulfill Romans 12, 1, by being living sacrifices, holding acceptable to God, unless we understand how we are acceptable to God. Because in my struggle to be acceptable to God, I never feel like I'm acceptable to Him. For if there ever is a time I feel acceptable in and of my own works or my own lifestyle, I instantly become unacceptable. <laughs> and so how are we to present ourselves acceptable to God? First of all, we need to have a foundation of this doctrinal truth that is thematic throughout the Gospel of Romans in regard to justification. And it simply is this, God declares me righteous. Now, what does that mean? Write this definition down. You're going to need to remember it. Justification is a divine and instantaneous legal act of God. When we come to faith in Christ, when we put faith, this is conversion faith, this is faith that, that, that we call saving faith. When, before you become a believer, you must have saving faith. There are two types of faith. There's a saving faith, and there's a faith in God after you are saved. So we're talking about saving faith. So once you put your saving faith in Jesus, then you are justified, and that justification is a divine, means it comes from God, and an instantaneous, it's not earned, merited, or deserved, something you get later on, it is an instantaneous act of God upon your conversion, upon your new birth, when you receive your new life. The moment you pray the prayer to trust in Jesus and put your faith in him, you are instantaneously, by a divine act of God, declared justice, just. You receive justification. Number two, it is based upon the work of Christ. The work that he did on the cross. There is no work that you can do in order to justify yourself. It is something that God does on the cross for you. And number three, whereby a sinner is pronounced righteous at conversion by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. What does imputation mean? It simply means you are credited with Christ's righteousness. He deposits on you, in you, and through you his righteousness that now gains you access and acceptability to God. Everybody understand all that? No, you don't. <laughs> It takes a lifetime to understand this, and to be quite honest with you, I think this is somewhat like the Trinity. You, you know it's true, but you can't explain it. You don't fully understand it, but you just put your faith in it and believe in it because this is what the Scriptures say. It's hard for us who are finite to understand an infinite God who has infinite wisdom and who does things in our lives that are infinitely impossible to understand. So there's never in this life, I don't care how smart you are, remember there's a, a friend of mine one of my deacons in my last church who, who literally uh, never forgot anything. He's, he's a genius. 
I mean, once he reads it, he, he remembers it. Very hard to repeat a message with a guy like that in your choir, by the way. And, uh, and he and I were on a visitation one time, and he, he, had, he said, you know, we're talking about our, our weaknesses and our struggles, and he would go with me on Monday night visitation back when we did those things. And, and he said, you know, my biggest and most difficult thing in my life is my mind. Now, I don't have that problem, do you? I don't. It's not my, it's not my brain. And he said, the reason is because I am so smart that if I'm not careful, I'll think that I'm as smart as God. You can't be as smart as God. You're human. You have limitations. You have prejudices. You have false perceptions. And you have this thing called pride. And you are still, by nature, a sinner. <laughs> so be careful with trying to outthink and outsmart God. You will not fully comprehend and understand all the complexities of God because he is infinitely bigger and broader than your little finite brain. However, let's talk about three key things in our next slide that help us understand. There are three key, key components to this. Number one, God thinks of our sins as forgiven. That's what righteousness does for us as he justifies us before God. God thinks of our sins as forgiven. Somebody said that, that justification is simply, it's as if I have never or had never sinned. One, when I come to faith in Christ and I put my faith in him and I, am, I, I become newborn, the spirit breathes new life into me and I become a new creation, all my sin from that moment on is gone. It's as if I had never sinned. Now, we have a hard time with that in most of us who have been in the church all of our lives because most of us, like you and like me, we were saved when we were younger, and we have a hard time understanding really what that means because we don't really think we were really bad sinners before we came to faith in Christ. I came to faith in Christ when I was eight years old, and so how much sin can an eight-year-old commit? Well, I was a pretty bad eight-year-old. <laughs> and... And just when I turned nine after I came to faith in Christ, it didn't mean I stopped sinning. But anyway, and so we have a hard time understanding that. But if you've been saved as an adult, this is revolutionary and it will change your life. Because there are many adults today who, who have a hard time. Once I came to faith in Christ, I have a hard time understanding how God can just, it's as if I have never sinned. The slate has been wiped clean. There are no sins that I am not been forgiven of. Now that'll revolutionize your life. But secondly, if you notice that Christ's righteousness now as belonging to us is permanent. When I come to faith in Christ, he imputes, he credits me with Christ's righteousness and that righteousness, that justification that he places upon me in my relationship with God the enmity that I had with God is gone. I'm now at peace with God. I can come into his presence and I'm acceptable to him is a permanent relationship. Now, you don't think that's revolutionary, but there are many so-called Christian churches today who would try to convince us that once we're saved, we're not eternally secure. As if our salvation and our security is something that we can lose based upon how we live or fail to live. The security of the believer and the permanency of our relationship and this whole concept of our righteous standing before God and that we are justified helps us understand that it is a permanent relationship that can never be lost. 
It is permanent. It is a forever position. Once you are saved, you are eternally secure. You are forever saved. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and it is a done deal. That's revolutionary. Because in my approach to Revelation, uh, Revelation, to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, if I don't live up to that, am I acceptable to God? Yes, still. Even though you can never live up to that standard, you never lose that position. That's incredible security. I can put my head on my pillow at night and know that when I wake up, and if I don't, I'm still permanently secure in him. It's not based upon my works or anything that I do but what he has done. And then lastly, God declares us to be righteous in his sight. Once I come to faith in Christ, he sees me as righteous from that point on. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean that I am sinless. But he sees me as possessing a righteousness. I like to think of it as seeing me now through the lens or through the filter of Jesus. In which I am never unacceptable to him. And every time I come before him, I come with Jesus between me and the Father. And he sees me through the righteousness of Christ and I am acceptable unto him. Now, last week, some of us thought, you know, I can never be holy. I can never rise up to the standard, and I feel guilty, and I feel shameful, and I feel remorseful about my sin, and I'm recognizing the sin in my life, and I'm struggling with that. And the Apostle Paul said, woe is me, you know, and, and he talked about it. Did that mean he was no longer acceptable to God? No, he was always from that moment on. But even though there was a struggle in his heart, he was still declared by God as righteous, and God saw him as righteous in spite of his sin that he's still struggling with. And so these are key components of justification and our acceptability before God. So let's sort of dissect this very quickly and let's look at five things according to the scriptures. Are you ready? We're going to fly through this quickly. Number one, justification is received by faith. Justification is received by faith. Romans 3, 28. Now, so far in the book of Romans, in the letter to the Roman church, the Christians in Rome, at about the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, he has been presenting this case like a lawyer in a court of law trying to, to put, put a defense for his position. That, you're, that, that you don't need to be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God. And he says in there, in Romans 3, 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's talked about the universality of sin. All of us are by nature sinners. We are born by nature sinners. And because we are born by nature sinners, we sin. And because by nature we are prone to sin, you have to teach a young child how to behave, how to act. They are by nature sinners. Anybody raised a toddler, you know what I'm talking about. And you were once a toddler. And there are some adults that are, even though they're 80 years old, they still act like toddlers. We think that the sun rises and falls for them and everyone else should cater to their needs. And he's already established the universality of our Adamic natural tendency to sin. And Romans 6.23, he says that the wage, the consequence of that sin, is death. And he's presenting a case that all of us by, by nature are sinners. We have acted 
as our nature, according to our nature, we have sinned against God. And because of that, the wage, the verdict should be death, hell, separation from God. Although hell is not really separation from God. We could have a whole discussion about that. Right, Brother Mike? So here we go. We are by nature sinners. We deserve to receive the wages of sin, which is death. How are we then saved? By faith. How do I receive the righteousness, the justification for my sin? By faith. He says it right here. We hold to the one who is justified. How? How are you justified? By works? What does it say? By faith. Is faith a works? No. (laughs) Faith is a gift. God gives you the faith to put your faith in Christ. And when you put your faith in Christ, you are saved by your faith. Romans 4, 3, he's continuing the argument in the middle of, he's presenting his case here at the, at the middle and to the end of chapter 3, this beautiful argument about that we are, we are saved by grace through faith and that our justification, we are justified and we see the righteousness right, by faith. And in Romans 4, he then gives us an illustration. He says in verse uh, 3 in chapter 4, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He goes to the argument to these people who are Jews who are trying to convince these, these Gentiles in order to be acceptable by God, you've got to be circumcised. They say, Wait a minute, Abraham, it was counted to him righteousness before he was circumcised. What's up with that? It's his argument. There there was no law yet (laughs) of circumcision, and yet he was counted righteous. And so we see in Genesis 15, 6, the quote here, where he says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord, and he was counted to him as righteousness. So he's appealing to them on the base of Scripture. He's appealing to them intellectually. Think it through, people. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're not justified by works. You're justified by faith. And again, in Romans 5.1, in case they didn't get it, because we're often slow to comprehend sometimes, and we need to hear it more than once, You know what I'm talking about? You need to hear it more than once. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ justified us, gave us peace with God, took care of that that sin that separated us from God, and now we can enter into a right relationship with God. Our relationship now is not one of enmity, not one of strife. Not one of condemnation, but it's one of peace. And now we can enter acceptable to God. Why? Based upon our faith in Jesus. What is faith, I ask you? I'm going to take a little bit longer on this one point because I think it's important for us to understand this. What is faith? I'm going to skip through the next four a lot quicker than this one. Because I think it's, it's important for us to try to stop here for a minute and talk about what is faith. What is saving faith? What is saving faith? There are two types of faith. There's saving faith, and there's faith in God after you're saved. The two are kind of parallel, and very, but we don't have time to talk about the other. We're talking about saving faith, and he's talking about the word here is saving faith. What kind of saving faith do you put in Christ in order to receive this 
position of being justified before God, acceptable to him, not on your own righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness. Saving faith, first of all, is about understanding. You receive a revelation from the Spirit of the Lord that helps you see who Jesus is and what he has done. Who Jesus is and what he did or what he's done. Now, when you understand, as the Spirit of God is giving you insight on who Jesus is, because only the Spirit of God can let you see who Jesus is, in the natural, you won't see who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, and many reject him because they don't recognize him as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, as the Savior. You have to know who he is. You have to understand who he is. And once you understand who he is, then you have to understand what he did on the cross of Calvary. The Mormons are not saved. I don't care. They can put Jesus Christ on their church all they want. They're not the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. Why aren't they saved? Their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the New Testament. He is not. Salvation is by works in the Mormon church. It is. And because even though they claim to believe in our Jesus, he is not that Jesus. You have to know who he is. He is the son of God. His brother is not Lucifer. God is not some God having spiritual babies up in heaven and Jesus is one of them and Lucifer is the other one except Lucifer is the fallen brother. That's heresy. The Mormon tabernacle choir, I don't care how many, how beautiful their Christmas songs is, they're not about our Jesus. Turn them off. They're demonic. They are not singing about the Jesus of the New Testament. You have to believe in who he is, not only who he is, but what he did. If anybody says they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but there's another way to be saved other than by grace through faith, it is not a faith that understands the work of Christ. And if anybody tells you you can lose your salvation, they don't understand what he did, and they are not saved. They don't have saving faith. So once I believe that he is who he claimed that he was and he did what he said he did, then I then step into the realm of belief. This is what we call heartstrings, so to speak, that many talk about. It's that pull, it's that nudge of the Holy Spirit where he is bringing you to him. It's not something that you just wake up one day and decide to be saved. He is drawing you to him by his Holy Spirit. It's an inner transformation where he pulls you in. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you know, how do you know there's, there's a a fish on the end of the line. You feel the tug. It's a tug. Now many today in the reform world want to do away with the tug, but I'm convinced the tug is a part of the heartstring, it's part of the belief concept where he's actually pulling you into the presence of Christ and into belief in him and you're believing in him as a heartstring. It's it's a heart thing we believe in. But the final step is the faith is the faith step in which we trust him. We commit to him as our Savior and our Lord. I commit to you my life, my heart, and my all. It's three things. It's understanding, it's belief, and it's trust. I trust you. In other words, if you get a, and I've done this before, I believe this, this stool will hold me up. I, I mean, I've examined it, I've looked at it, I, I think it's sturdy enough, I understand it will hold me up. Got four legs, seems pretty sturdy. I've reached an understanding 
It'll hold me up. I believe it will hold me up. Based upon my understanding, I believe it will hold me up. But have I exhibited faith until I do what? Sit on it. Until I trust it enough to sit on it. I haven't exercised saving faith. And now in Christ, I am relaxed. I am resting on his final work in which he has done it all for me. And I trust that he took upon himself my sin on the cross, died in my place, so that now I have been completely forgiven. And upon conversion, when I put my faith in him, all my sins have been, it's as if I have never sinned. And I am permanently anchored, permanently anchored. In this thing called faith, because I trust him. There are times when I may be confused about what, what he's done and, and maybe uncertain, and, and I hear truths that validate and confirm. There may be times I don't feel as if I'm, I, you know, because, you know, woe is me, man. I, I know what I'm doing, and I can't do it. But, and, and we have a tendency to listen to the enemy, and he whispers in our ear. <laughs> You're not really saved. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You're a liar, Satan. Because I know what the Bible says. And I have received by faith my salvation. I, have, I understand who he is. I understand what he did. I put my faith in that. I, I have been pulled by the Spirit of God, that heartstring pull, that belief. I believe that he saves, and I have trusted in him. I have rested on that work, and it's by grace through faith that I am saved. And I believe it, and it's true. I don't care what Satan says or, or sometimes I may think or feel I'm saved. And so there's no confusion. There may still be some conflict, but there's no confusion. Won't that revolutionize your walk with the Lord? And who of us have not struggled with our salvation from time to time? I think that's part of what he says about working out your own salvation. <laughs> it's a life process. So justification, first, is received by faith. Secondly, as we go quicker through these things, realize it's by Christ alone. I need to realize, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I need to, I need to, I need to understand that justification is released by grace. It's released by grace. Once I place my faith and trust in Christ, he releases it by grace. What is grace? It is unmerited, undeserved unwarranted gift from God. He just gives it to me. Here, it's a gift. Notice what he said in Romans 3.22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But those of us who put their faith in Christ, we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified, how? As a gift. What? Through faith. It's by grace that we have been saved. It's a, it's a grace gift. There is no distinction for all have sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Gift means freely given. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. No, that means there's nothing you can do in order to receive it. it. There's no price that you could pay, no work that you could do, no effort that you could exhaust that could earn, merit, deserve what God has done for you. It's simply by his favor. 
It's simply by an act of faith. He just freely gives it to you through the redemption that is found in who? None other than Jesus Christ. Romans eleven six 6 says, But if it is by grace, you know, this is an interesting little verse. I like it. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I mean, if you got to work for it to earn it, then it's not grace. But because it's grace, it's not earned. It's not merited. It's not deserved. And some of us somehow in our pride somehow have convinced ourselves that we have earned, that we deserve, that we merit what we have received from God. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. It is a demonic pride that should be always squelched by the Spirit of God. There is no pride, there's no work, there's no effort by which you can say, I have done it. If you were to stand before God, I like CWT and and, uh, continuous witnessing training, I think that's what it was, where's Brother Gale? And there's a thing called evangelism explosion, and there's a part of that at the end of your presentation, well, at the beginning of the presentation, I think it is, where you say, if you were to stand before God right now, And he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? If you were to stand before God right now, and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, because I attended Emmanuel Baptist Church every Sunday morning. Well, we know that'd be a lie, because you don't all attend here every Sunday morning. Okay, I attended three weeks out of the month, maybe. The standard faithfulness now is two months, uh, two Sundays out of the month. I went to church. I gave my tithes. I gave my offering. I attended life group. I served on a committee. I, I, I gave my, you know, and you start naming these things that you have done. What's the response from, from God? And depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew. Why do we do these things? Not to earn merit something that, that we can never work for or earn. It's not by works. Because if it were by works, then it wouldn't be Grace. The only answer that is acceptable to God is the only reason why I should be allowed in your heaven is because of the final work that Christ did on the cross for me and my faith in that final redemptive work on the cross. Because I have placed my faith and trust in him, it's that work, that finished work, that he took upon himself my sin against God, died in my place, and now because of that work and that work alone, do I gain access into your heaven. That's it. I bring nothing to the equation. I bring nothing to the table. It's all on Jesus, and it's all about Jesus, and it's about what he has done, not based upon what I need to do. And if there's any aspect about this thing called, I've got to work in order to get God's favor, to get God's blessing, it's by grace. Because if we we got what we deserved, what would it be? You don't have enough goodness in you. There is none good, no, not one. We're all by nature sinners, condemned to a a place called hell because of our sin. But now there's therefore no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So it's released by grace, it's realized in Christ alone. It's realized in Christ alone. It's by grace and it's in Christ. It's almost repetitive, but I want to make sure that we understand this and that it's clear. It's in Christ that we become righteous. And it's his righteousness that we receive. Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to the received by faith. We are justified by grace as a gift. It is a freely given gift through redemption. What is redemption? That's an interesting word here. Some believe that half of the population of Rome was made up of slaves. And this word is a word that is used in the slave trade. Now, the slave trade back then was not about race. It was about poverty. <laughs> and it didn't have anything to do with, with, with racial slavery, but it was just slavery in general. You didn't care about the color of your skin, white or black, whatever, Asian. There were slaves of all nationalities from all places of the world, even Romans themselves who couldn't pay their bills, eventually sold family members as slaves to pay off the debt. And they understood what this word meant. It's a slave word in which Jesus, when you were put on the auction block and, and, and you were for sale, Jesus said, I will pay the price. I'll pay it in full. And he did it on the cross. And when he paid the price in full, he released you into freedom. Redemption. But the word propitiation is an interesting word. It's a complicated word. It's a word that you need to understand. And it talks about the appeasement that was made on our behalf when Christ paid the price in full. When we were sinners, we were at enmity with God. There was strife between us and God. There was not peace between us and God. But Jesus took away that, and he fulfilled that appeasement. And now we can be at peace with God and be acceptable before the Lord. Why? Because we are in Christ. We are acceptable before God because we are in Christ. We received by faith, realized through grace, and now we are Release the grace. Now we realize that, that this position that we have is in Christ. Not, I'm not standing in my own righteousness, but I'm standing before him in Christ's righteousness. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. I was watching a, a, a one-hour sitcom here recently in uh, Blue Bloods. It, it's hard not to like Tom Selleck. Come on, guys, Right? There's some about him. Got that rugged look, man, and I mean, one of my favorite actors. And it's interesting, they're Catholic. And uh, I think it was this weekend, and they went into, somebody was seeing a priest, I don't remember who it was, and the priest heard his confessional. Man, praise God, we don't have to go to a priest to confess our sin. Although I would like to hear some of your sins. <laughs> Pretend as if I didn't know who you were. <laughs> That'd be awesome. And then to shake your hand later and go, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you will serve on that committee, won't you? <laughs> and he said at the end of the confession, he said, I think it said like, now you got to say three Hail Marys. What's that for? Boy, I'd love to be able to do that. Uh, you're forgiven of your sin, but that'd be $500. We could raise plenty of money and pay off the debt. I think about that, Brother David. 
is there anything that you have to do to pay for in order now to get forgiveness? No amount of praying, no amount of serving, no amount of giving, no amount of doing, no amount of sacrifice. They can crucify you upside down and burn you on a cross and it's still not enough to earn merit to deserve this beautiful thing called grace by which we gain access to God through faith. It's realized in Christ alone. Number four, it's rooted in truth. It's rooted in truth. There are two truths I want to talk about very quickly. Number one, I'm acquitted from all sin. This is a truth. You are now in Christ acquitted from all sin. That means that there's no longer a charge that is going to be brought against you in the final judgment because everything has been forgiven. You are acquitted. It's done. It's under the blood. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice he says in Romans 5, 7, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When an animal was placed upon an altar in Jesus' day before he died on the cross and they still had altar sacrifices, the animal was presented in a substitute for the worshiper and it was placed upon the altar on the Day of Atonement. And uh, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and he would sprinkle, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat first for himself and then for those worshipers who were seeking um, acquittal for their sin. And, and that, that animal gave its life. Jesus was the final and the ultimate sacrifice who gave his life for the acquittal of all of our sin. And now there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no charge, no charge against you for your sin. That's a dangerous concept though, isn't it? Because it could cause us to want to go out and just sin a whole bunch because there's no charge against us now because we have a permanent position. And someone's going, well, you Baptists, you believe once saved, always saved. Somebody go out there and they could, they could, they could just live any life they want to and you'll, you'll say they're still saved. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. But you've been acquitted. That's an incredible truth. That'll change your life. Number two in this truth is I'm assigned his righteousness. I am assigned his righteousness. This is not overkill, but I want to continually enforce this by repetition. We are now saved by faith. We are identified in Christ. And once we put saving faith in Jesus, we are assigned, we are given, we are credited his righteousness. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How are you made righteous before God? In Christ. And in Christ alone. 
in and through nothing else and no one else other than Jesus. Now lastly, let's look at the reflection that, that happens through a changed life. Because justification is reflected by a changed life. And many would sort of accidentally skip over this verse, but there's an important verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. And this whole argument about presenting us as sinners and our responsibility to follow the law and all that, notice he says in Romans 2, 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Wait a minute, Charles. I thought you just said we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith, and that justification and righteousness is not attained by anything that I do. There's no work that I can do in order to receive righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here. And so there's a contradiction in Paul's very own writing, and there seems to be a contradiction in what you're saying. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, I believe, in this text, exactly what James says, and we're going to look at what James says in chapter 2 in just a moment. You can, you can with your words say that you are justified, but words alone mean absolutely nothing. It's by the walk that you live, the way that you live your life, that validates your justification. Now, the way that you live and the walk that you you engage in on a daily basis doesn't save you, but it validates that which you claim. If I were to stand in my my garage in a little bit this afternoon and stand there for an hour and say, I'm a car, I'm a car, I'm a car, I'm a car, would that make me a car? Well, I'm claiming to be a car, but I'll never become a car. Why? That's ridiculous, you would say. And so his argument here is, as he's battling his whole concept of those who who want to, he said, just because I'm saying that, that you shouldn't, that obedience in and of itself does not justify you before God, doesn't give you a license now to just live any way you want to, because if you are truly justified, if you truly are standing in the righteousness of God, if you have peace with God and acceptability before God, then you would want to live for God. You would want to walk in his ways and live out the life that he's called you to live. You would want to then present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. You would want to do that. Why? Not because I am going to be saved through my own work, but to validate, to sort of say, hey, Lord, I'm doing this because this is who I am, and this is who you are unto me, and this is how I live my life now. And I think there are many today who are seeking to live a certain life that we're seeking to live and in all this struggle to be holy and acceptable to God by thinking if I'm holy and acceptable, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to somehow earn favor with God. And that's not why we should do that. That's this, that's this satanic pride or this, this fleshly pride that somehow we've got to earn. We've got to earn it. James says it in, in chapter 220, same, same argument. Do you want to be shown, you foolish persons, that faith apart from works is useless? Skip down to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, you say you have faith, your, your life should reflect your word your, your walk should reflect your word. Now, your words don't mean you're acceptable. And your work doesn't make you acceptable. But certainly your, 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 your word, your word should reflect your walk. Does that make sense? 
Anybody have tied shoes on? Who's got some, some shoes with laces on? You have some shoes with laces on? Come here. You, you, hurry up. Come on, man. You're young. All the way up here. Yeah. How many of you have heard the old saying, pull yourself up by your, by your, own, bootstrap, by your own bootstraps? You ever heard anybody say that? You never heard anybody say that? Okay, let me ask you to do something. I want you to get hands on either shoe, by your shoelaces, one, on each, one hand on each, on each foot. Okay, now pull yourself up. Come on. No, no. Come on, can you do it? I don't think so. Why not? Ah. So can you justify yourself? You can? No. That's my point. You can no longer, thank you. You can no, be, no longer be justified by your own work than you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can no longer be justified by your own works then you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Once you understand that, it'll change your life. It'll change your relationship between you and God. It'll change your relationship with others. Because, you know, if I think I can pull myself by my own bootstraps and I'm going to demand that everybody else do the same thing that I myself cannot do, it takes away this, this prideful self righteousness and this condemnation and this this I call it a, a fleshly if not a demonic spirit that often tries to think that we can earn we can merit we can deserve this whole concept of justification so as we close here's some questions have you been trying to win over God's approval and acceptance And somebody today, I don't think they're here, that I was asked to be an usher, but I don't feel as if I am worthy to be an usher. Nobody's worthy to do anything here. I said nobody's worthy to do anything here. To stand up here or to be an usher in the church. I don't care what your position is. Are you convinced there's sin in your life that's keeping you from God? Sometimes I think we'd rather run from God rather than to God because we think that there's somehow something that we have done that, that would, God would say, unacceptable, unworthy, unforgivable, unredeemable. You, you're just not welcome here. When I think about the prodigal son. And when he came home, he found his father what? Come on. Been waiting here. Come on. It didn't turn him away. It was his son. And, and that sonship wasn't based upon how he acted or how he lived. He took his father's inheritance and he squandered it. 
And then when he realized the error of his ways, he repented and came back to the Father and he found the Father. I'm, I'm here. I've been waiting the whole time. You're welcome. Why? Because he was still the Father's son. He didn't lose that position. And his Father longed for that relationship. Are you bound to a works religion that nullifies the work of Christ? Are you bound to a works religion that nullifies, makes it void the work that Christ did? And then lastly, when you stand before God on judgment day, will you feel as though all your sins have been acquitted or will you try to put up an argument in your defense? I don't care how good of a debater you are. There is no argument to put up a good defense. And the only defense we have is Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't have a leg to stand on. But if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. So the question is, as we close, do you have Jesus? I'm convinced there's some people that think they have saving faith, but they, don't, they didn't know who Jesus is. They don't know who he is. And they're putting their faith in the wrong is about Jesus. You got to know who he is. You got to know what he's done. And you got to believe in what he did, not in what you're going to do. And there has to be a tug, a pull from the Spirit of God toward God. Where he's pulling you, he's nudging you, he's leading you, he's drawing you unto himself. It's not something you do, it's something he does. He draws you to him. And then you you commit to resting, to trusting in his final and complete work. Let's pray.